Precious Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, precious Lord, that indeed you have given it to us. Indeed, precious Lord, one of the beautiful blessings to Israel was that they had the oracles of God. And Lord, we have so much more. We have your oracles, not only the Old Testament, but your New Testament scriptures. And Lord, we pray that indeed we would receive your word this morning with gladness in our hearts, with, with meekness and patience and submissive hearts. But we pray as well, Lord, this morning that we would learn to obey what you have said to us in it, that we would not just be hearers but doers. And so we pray, Lord, teach us your word that we may walk in all your commandments. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be reading from James 1, starting at verse... Well, let's start at verse... verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a, a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Amen. This is the infallible word of, of our God. Well, this morning we're going to be looking... Uh, at verses 20 through, 22 through to verse 27. And last week we looked at verses 19 through to verse 21. And it's a joy to be able to preach uh, two weeks in a row because then you get to preach what God wrote down in His Word as next uh, to be followed and to be obeyed. And so these verses in verses 20 through to verse 27 continue, if you like, what James is saying to us about how we to deal with the Word of God. But this morning, I want to ask you the question, do you hate being deceived? Do you hate being deceived? Do you hate when others pull the wool over your eyes? Have you ever been tricked more than once? Well, we can even deceive ourselves. It's not just others who deceive us, but we can deceive ourselves. Sometimes we convince ourselves that we know things that we don't actually know, or can do things that we don't actually know how to do. For example, if you convince yourself that you know how to change a tire when you do not, there's a bit of a problem because one day your tire may go flat and you'll be stranded on the side of the road. And that's when you have to call someone like Tade or Ray or, or someone else. Well, what's the cost of being deceived? Because it's one thing to be deceived, but what's the cost of being deceived? Well, it can vary. 
Or you could be left on the side of a road, stranded with a flat tyre. Or you could look a bit silly in front of others when you think that you know something and you say you do, and then you can't explain it. Or you could lose a lot of money with a bad business venture. There are many, many ramifications or the the costs of being deceived. The cost of the deceit changes depending on the importance of it and the amount to which you are deceived. The cost of being deceived depends on the importance of it and the amount to which you are deceived. Because when it comes to your soul, if you're deceived, whether it's deceived by others in the words they say to you or yourself deceived, it has eternal ramifications. It has eternal ramifications. And last week we heard about rightly receiving the word, we're to be patient. Whereas as James says, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. We're to be meek and we're to humbly receive the word of God. Or otherwise we'll hinder the sanctifying work of the Spirit on our souls. But what James is saying to us from verses 22 through to verse 27 is what we're to do after we receive the word. We're to receive the word rightly, but if it just stops there, it's useless. It's useless. And we're going to see that this morning. What do we do with the word when we, when we, when we hear it or when we read it? When we take it in, what do we do with it? Does it just puff us up? Does it make us just think that we know a lot? Well, as we'll see in these verses, the central doctrine is this, that pure religion, blessed by God, consists of being a doer of the word. Let me repeat that. Pure religion that is blessed by God consists of being a doer of the word. As we go through our verses Verses 22 through to verse 25, we're going to be seeing that we are to listen and do the word. And verses 26 and 27 talk about pure religion before God. But let's have a look. Firstly, listening and doing the word. Verse 22, the deceitfulness of merely listening. Verse 22, we need to understand this. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it is says and we see here a negative and a positive well the negative says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves because we must receive the word as we saw last week we must take it in but if it stops there there's a problem because for Christians the God's word and God's law is not just to be admired for, for because it is it's it's holy it's just and good as it says in the book of Romans it's perfect, it's blameless, it's clean, endures forever, as Psalm 19 says. It's, it's many wonderful things and we admire it. And we even discuss it and we, we talk about all the, way, every, all the promises of God. We talk about all the commands of God. But if we just talk about it and think about it, but don't do it, there's a problem. And so that's the negative. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What's the positive? Have a look at the next words. Do what it says. Do what it says. Or it literally reads, but become doers of the word. Doers of that word. And that word doer is a noun. It is a title for Christians. The law of God is to be obeyed. Maybe you can think about this as an illustration. that Parents with their children... 
And when a parent tells a child what to do, clean up your room, don't say that, don't touch that, do you think a parent should tell a child what to do when the child says, yes, mum, yes, dad, and doesn't do it? Do you think the parent should say, good, I'm, I'm glad you heard what I said? No, the parent expects to be obeyed. Now, they must make sure the child has received and understood what has been given as a command. But if it stops there, it's useless and worthless. And in fact, the child will often get disciplined for not obeying. And so often children will say yes, and yet they don't do exactly what they've said yes, said yes to. The law of God is to be obeyed. But remember, I said before, there's a cost to being deceived. Have a look down at verse 26. We're going to have a quick look at verse 26. It says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Right? He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And that ties in with verse 22. Deceiving yourselves. If you don't obey the word of God, you are deceiving yourself. You are tricking yourself. And this word religion in verse 26, often, the word, often religion gets a bad rap among Christians. We go, I've got a relationship and they've got religion. It's not true. We also have religion. But what is religion? Because it talks about religion this morning. Because... In one sense, we, it's good. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be merely showing the externals. We're not the inward reality. And yet religion is not a bad thing. Well, what is religion? What's well, the outward expression of devotion and worship to God? Or a God for all the other religions in the world? It's the, it's the outward expression of devotion and worship to a transcendent being or a divine being or, or a higher power. For Christians, it's to God. But what does it mean here in our passage, in these verses? Well, it says it in verses 22, 23, and 25. And it actually, if you're reading the, the, the Black NRV Bibles, it's actually really hard to see because there are three nouns there. And that noun is the word doer. And if you have a look there, verse 22, it says, do what it says. It actually says, be a doer of the word. In verse 23, it says, be a doer. Verse, verse 25, it says, be a doer. So we want to be a religious in a way that honours God. We're to love Him and we're to love others. But we don't want our religion to be worthless because that's the word there used in verse 26. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now that word worthless used there is the same word in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 where, where Paul is, is going to go into this glorious um, exposition on the resurrection. Because the Corinthian church, there are some in there who are saying that the dead are not raised. And that has big ramifications for the gospel and for their salvation. And in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Same word, worthless. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 says, you were redeemed from the futile or worthless way of life inherited from your forefathers. And so if you're deceiving yourself here this morning, the stakes are eternal. 
It's not just a flat tire or stranded on the side of the road. It's not just you look a bit silly. No, the stakes are eternal. Because if your religion is worthless, it has, it's nothing before God. It's nothing. It's, it's the futile ways of life that you were once living in. Your faith is worthless. Your so-called religion is worthless. And, and in chapter 2 of the book of James, James goes into this. Faith without works, and you can probably finish the sentence, faith without works is dead. That's a worthless religion. Faith without works. You're claiming to receive the word by faith, but if you're not obeying it, there's no works. It's a dead faith. It produces nothing. Faith, true faith. Living faith given by God is a faith that receives the word of God and then obeys it. It puts it into practice. Obedience to God's law is the fruit. Now a false faith is like a dead plant. No matter how much you water it, it's dead. No matter how much word goes in the water, it's just going to be dead. It's not going to produce any fruit. But an alive plant, a living plant, when you, when you pour the water on it, bears fruit. And that's what a living faith does. It produces fruit. The fruit doesn't make the plant alive. But it's the evidence that the plant is alive. It's evidence that the fruit, uh, the fruit is the evidence that there's a living faith. Now, a false faith is often a self-deceiving faith. It deceives a person about their own state before God. But how do you discern a false faith? Because that's what James is getting at here this morning. How do you discern if your religion, what you believe, your faith, how do you discern if it's false? Well, first, it believes the wrong things. It doesn't understand or believe the biblical gospel. You can't produce good fruit unless you've understood and believed the gospel and you're saved. If you don't understand the gospel or believe it, you can't be saved. And so therefore you can't bear fruit. So a false faith believes the wrong things. But how else do you discern a false faith? Well, a false faith is one in which there are no resulting works. No resulting works. You have to be a doer of the word. If you are merely a hearer, you're deceiving yourselves. But not only do you have to produce fruit and works, but a false faith, on the, on the opposite, is a false faith if it has the wrong works. You have to be not only a doer, but a doer of the word. A doer of the word. And I'll explain what this means. Maybe someone has this objection. Can't I just do without believing the right stuff? Can't I do without believing the right stuff? Well, you, your religion is worthless. How can you do the right thing when you do not believe the gospel and do not have the Spirit of God? Or maybe another objection is, what about other religions? Don't they do stuff? Aren't they doers? Yes, but they don't do the word. They don't do the word. They do their own religion. They follow man's law and the religious practices of, of the pagans which don't honor God. What about a third objection? Well, I have a relative who used to say they were saved, but they kind of drifted away and are living in sin. That person's religion is worthless. That person's religion is worthless because they're showing evidence that they're self 
deceived. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, are you a doer of the word? Are you a doer of the word? Or do you love to merely listen and hear and take in and store up knowledge, which is good? But do you fail to do what it says? Or are you a doer of the word? If you're here this morning and you're not a doer of the word, the Bible's evidence is that you have not been saved. Not that those works save you in any way, but there's no evidence that you're saved. You have no right to say that you are. Well, next we see the foolishness of merely listening. Not, not just the deceitfulness of merely listening, but the foolishness. It's not only are you deceiving yourself if you're only listening and not obeying, but it's foolish too. And that's what James gets at next. Have a look with me, verses 23 and 24. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. We've all surely done this. We've gone to the mirror, we've looked at our face, and we've noticed something there. A blemish. Something in our teeth. You know that, that green little bit of parsley or whatever it is that no one actually told you about when you were eating and you were smiling at them with it in your teeth? Or maybe you were actually you were chewing on the end of your pen and you got pen on your face? Or sleepy dust in the morning, or your hair looks like you've just been attacked by a hurricane. Whatever it is, we've done this where we've looked at it, we've seen the blemish, and we've gone away and we've forgotten. And we keep smiling with that bit in our teeth, and we keep, you know, our hair looks crazy, and then we look again later, and we, oh, and then we we fix it up. And that word looks there. At the end of verse 23, looks at his face in the mirror. That, that word means to look fully. It's a careful consideration. And God's word is described as a mirror here. A mirror, and specifically not just all of God's word, but in particular the law of God, his commands. It's like a mirror. And mirrors in those days were not exactly as clear as ours are. They were made of often polished metal, bronze or silver, Yet they still showed up the blemishes. They still showed up the blemishes and the improvements that needed to be made once you saw those blemishes. And that's what James is getting at here. Is that you just see the blemishes and the things you need to fix. But the problem is when you forget and you don't fix them, you don't do something with the vision that you've just seen. Now when I say the word law and when you, you see... In verse 25, after these two verses, you see the word law there. This, this law, let me, just, let me define what this law is. The, this law is the, the moral law of God. And this law of God is His commandments. And it's summarized firstly in the Ten Commandments that God gave at Mount Sinai. And which Jesus then summarizes all together in two great commandments. He says this in Matthew 22. It says, and Jesus said to him, he's speaking to a scribe, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. 
And so when we think of God's word as a mirror, when it shows up our blemishes and shows us what we must do, that's speaking of the moral law of God. It's speaking of the Ten Commandments. All the commandments of God's word is speaking of those summarized in the Ten Commandments and then in those two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the mirror that we have in God's word. That's the mirror that we have. Well, the first thing that the law shows us, the first thing God's word shows us is our sin. Is our sin. And why does God show us our sin? So that we may confess it to him and be forgiven. And let me tell you, if you are a Christian and you don't regularly read God's word, and you don't sit, regularly sit under God's word, and the law of God is not having an effect on you, you're going to become hardened to your sin. You're not going to see your sin in your heart. It's not going to want to confess sin. It's going to want to. It's like the searching torchlight of God's law is not being shined on your sins. But as soon as you start reading the Word of God again, you go, Oh man, how sinful am I? How sinful am I? That's the first thing that the law shows us is our sin, the great mirror of God's law. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what's Paul, what's Paul saying there? The law is not sin. It's the problem's not in the law. In fact, he says in the, in the same chapter, he says the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is it's good and we're not. And it shows us our sin. The law shows up our sin in all its glorious detail. And how often is sin so general? We, we just go, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a sinner. And as soon as the law of God comes, we go, now I know the specific ways in all my sin is. And, and we realize how much more of a sinner we are. And then we confess our sin to God. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the second thing the law shows us is what God requires of us in terms of obedience. We must use the word of God not only to, to get rid of blemishes, but we must use um, the mirror of God's law to dress ourselves in obedience, to put off the sin and to put on obedience. Remember the putting off of sin and the putting off of, sorry, putting off of sin and putting on the meekness and the righteousness which God requires from last week? The Lord tells us what these things are. And so when we come to God's word and we receive it and we see our sin and we see the obedience God requires, we would be fools. That's what James is getting at here. We'd be fools to go away and just go, huh? And just forget it. And just go, okay, all right, yeah, I believe it, I believe it. And just kind of push down the sin and, and try and forget the ways in which we should obey God. James is saying, don't do that. That's not the purpose of God's law. You must obey it. Matthew Henry said this, How many are there who, when they sit under the word, are affected with their own sinfulness, misery and danger, acknowledge the evil of sin and their need of Christ, but when their hearing is over, all is forgotten, convictions are lost, good affections vanish and pass away like the waters of a land flood. You may come out of here today 
greatly affected by the word of God. You may come out of here convicted by your sin. You may come out of here feeling guilty. You may come out of here feeling resolved to walk in obedience. Like our New Year's resolutions, which we make, but often don't keep. But don't walk out of here with the right response to what God is saying to you in His Word and go, poof, and then it all vanishes. Don't do that. Don't walk out of here in all these godly good thoughts, whether you've recognized your sin or whether you've resolved to walk in means. Don't let that disappear as soon as you walk out of the building. Because that would be foolish. Don't today, particularly today, brethren, don't let today on the Lord's day, don't let worldly thoughts so intrude that they dispel and get rid of all godly thoughts and all the thoughts in God's word and all those feelings of guilt which you should confess to the Lord for your sin. Don't let all your good intentions to honour God disappear. Maybe do this. After you've heard the sermon today, or maybe as we, as we hear week in, week out with Joel as he preaches, write one or two things down. Pick one thing, pick two things of, of how you're going to obey the word of God. How are you going to respond to it? Write down two things that you can do. Keep it simple. Better to write down one or two things and actually do them than write down 15 and not do any of them. Brethren, listen and obey God's word. But what's the purpose of it? Not only is it, not only is it foolish and deceitful to listen and not obey, but... But next, have a look, look at the purpose of the law for the believer. Verse 25, have, have a read in me. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. He will be blessed in what he does. Have a look with me there. That verse... It says, looks intently. Looks intently. That word there means to bow down the head. Right? It's this picture of, you know, if there's something there, it's not that you just kind of look at it and side glance. No, you, you bow down your head and you look at it. Like in Luke 24 when it says, But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping down and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So Peter, when he got to the tomb, didn't just go, you know, just maybe, maybe just glance in just a little bit. He didn't kind of just, you know, hide himself and look in. No, he, he, he bent his head down so that he could peer in carefully. Or he didn't just kind of go and then just, just, just stop before he even got on the tomb and didn't even look in. Brethren, there must always be a careful, diligent, an earnest searching into the mind of God in the scriptures so that we may obey it. So we must study the scriptures with all earnestness, not only so that we may know what to believe, but that we may know what to obey. So that we don't just know the promises of God, to trust. Not only do we know the, 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 the glories of God that we marvel at Him, not only the, the dangers of sin, but His command so that we may obey Him and do what is pleasing in His sight. 
So we must study the scriptures with all earnestness. And I can tell you, the more you study the scriptures, the more you read them and let them soak into your mind, the more God is going to conform you into the image of His Son as you listen and receive and obey it. And a good way, and I thought I'd mention this, a good way of seeing God's law and all His commands brought together is in a tool called the Westminster Larger Catechism. If you've never heard what a catechism is, it's a, it's a selection of questions and answers. It's basically good, sound doctrine put in question and answer form. That's a wonderful thing to teach your kids, the shorter catechism. But the larger catechism, what it does is it takes many truths throughout Scripture, but particularly towards the end, it takes the Ten Commandments and it lists them all out. But it not only just lists them, but under each of the Ten Commandments, what it does, because remember, the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law. What it does is it puts all that God requires of us for obedience and all the sins right, that we must see, and it puts all of them under each of the Ten Commandments. It's wonderful. So, so go online, get a copy of it, whatever. But if you want to see all of God's commands put together, and put in systematically under the Ten Commandments in, in that form of how we to obey and honour God in our obedience and, and the sin that we to confess to God and put off. That's a wonderful resource to use. But have a look at the next words in verse 25. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... I've already looked at that, the, the, the law, the moral law of God. But it's called the perfect law. Why is it perfect? Well, it's perfect because it's free from all error and impurity and any sin. But that word perfect there means kind of mature and complete. And that will tie in with what I'm going to say in a sec. But the law is also perfect because by the Spirit we're conformed into the perfect character of God. Because it also reveals to us God's character and Christ and who He is. But next, not only is it the perfect law, but it's the perfect law that is the perfect law that brings freedom. The perfect law that gives freedom. Now, maybe you think this in your mind: Doesn't the law bring slavery and bondage? And the answer is yes. If you're a natural person and not a Christian, if you're a non-Christian, yes, that's what the law does. You're in bondage to the law. You're in slavery to the law. So why is James saying here it's the law that gives freedom? Why is it the law that gives freedom? Well, the Reformation Study Bible says this. The law of God sets us free as it drives us to Christ who alone can free us from sin. And having been justified, declared righteous in God's sight, we then find God's law to be the law of freedom. For we are truly free only when we do what's pleasing to the Lord. So the law is never freedom if you're trying to earn righteousness before God. The law is never freed freedom when you want to be justified before God in His sight. To be made righteous in His sight. Never but the law, what it does is it shows us our sin and drives us to Christ as the only Savior from our sin. And then when we're saved, the Spirit enables us to live in obedience to God in that freedom. 
Romans 7 says that we have died to the law through the body of Christ so that we can serve now in the newness of life and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. We're set free from that. We've died to the law, right, in slavery to the law, so that we can now serve in the newness of life, in freedom. If you can, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Galatians 5. So keep your finger in James chapter 1. But turn to Galatians 5 and you can find that on page 1,154. And I really want you to see this because if you understand the place of the law and the gospel... That's, that's the summary of, of, of God's word, is understanding the right place of the law and the gospel. And if you don't, you wander into many errors and even heresies. So Galatians 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 6, and we're going to skip down to then to verses 13 to 14. But the whole, the whole passage is, is glorious. Have a look with me. Verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burned again by yoke of slavery. Stop there for a second. We were saved by Christ unto freedom. Not to go back to slavery, but for freedom. Uh, that's what Paul's getting at here in Galatians. Keep reading. Verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value at all to you at all. Again, I declare to you, to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. What's Paul getting at here? You're set free for freedom, not to go back to the law to be justified by the law. Because that's what the law does if you seek to be justified by it. So if you here claim to be a Christian and yet you would then go back to the law, the commands to be justified by them, to be saved by them, Christ is of no use to you. That's what James says here. Christ is, in, is, is, is of no use to you. And, and the example he gives here is of, of circumcision. You've, you're alienated from Christ, it says, and you've fallen away from grace. That's not a good thing. Alienated from Christ and fallen away from grace. Why? Because you're relying on your works again. You're relying, your confidence is in your works again. What's the solution? Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what's the proper solution? Is not to rely on the law and your works to justify you before God. What is it? Is that your faith expresses itself through love. So those works are not relied upon, but they're merely an expression of your faith in love. That's the whole point of the law. It's, it's to love God and to love others. That's why we receive the word so that we obey it. So we walk in love to others and love to God. That's an expression of our faith. Verse 13 and 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. 
The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see what I mean? See what Paul is getting at here? We use our freedom not to indulge our sinful nature and seek to be justified by the law, but we use it. We use the commands of God to serve God, yes, and to love God, but to serve each other in love. That's his point. The law is freedom when you're resting in Christ and you're using the law to honor God and to serve others as a sign of your faith and thankfulness to God. Turn back to James chapter 1. What does it say in verse 25? And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. We're to keep doing it. There's no day off in the Christian life. It's not you shouldn't wake up one morning and go, you know what? Maybe God will give me a pass today. You know, I'll just I'll live however. Today, today's a, a Saturday. I'll, I'll live however I want. Or maybe it's a baby pick a Tuesday. No, there's no day off in the Christian life. But there's great blessing in obeying God. Have a look at the next words. He will be blessed in what he does. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed? Now the Roman Catholics say, see, you're blessed for your good deeds. See? You do a good deed and it merits blessing from God. That's, that's not what he's saying here. It's not, it doesn't say we'll be blessed for our deeds. It says we'll be blessed in what we do. In what we do. We do not find blessing caused by our deeds, but in the way of our deeds. As we walk in obedience, God delights to bless his children. He does. He delights to bless obedience. John 13, 17 says, If you know these things, Jesus said, Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet and served them in love, in obedience to God's law. He says, If you know these things, blessed are you, not just that you know them, but if you do them. As I read these next verses from John 14, 23 and John 15, and you may want to meditate on these verses later, the blessings of, of obeying God, but have a listen for the blessings that come with obedience. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's the first blessing. Let me go on, chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So as you walk in obedience, you will have a greater sense of the love of God and his presence, you will have greater alignment of your will to God's and so that you will find more answered prayer. You will have assurance of your salvation as you bear fruit and so prove to be one of Christ's disciples. And there's so much peace and joy with, with that assurance. And there's fullness of joy. Proverbs 3 verse 17 to 18 says, Wisdom's ways are pleasantness and all her paths are peace. That's what it means to walk in obedience to God. God blesses you and, and will grant you his peace and joy, assurance of his love and assurance of your salvation. Christian, are you going around 
and seeking to obey God, are you going around like it's a drudgery? It's, a, it's, it's misery to obey God? No, brethren, it's a blessed thing to obey the Lord. It's a blessed thing to walk in obedience. And others should see us delighting to obey our great and awesome God. But let's have a look at the last two verses. James gives three examples of doing the word. And this is pure religion before God. You want to know what true religion is like? What it looks like? As examples, well, James gives three examples in verses 26 and 27. Have a look with me. The first is we are to keep a tight rein on our tongues. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Remember what we were talking about? If you want to have a non-worthless religion and a one that honours God, well, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Bridle it like the, the horse's bridle and the bit that was in its mouth. And that word there is not only the bit and bridle, right? But it's also the reins that went with it. And they're not just there for decoration. They're there to control and steer and guide the horse. And so we are to put a bit and bridle and reins on our tongue. Pardon me. We're to put a bit and bridle and reins on our tongue. We're to be self-controlled in our tongue. Remember verse 19 that we looked at last week? Being quick to listen and slow to speak. It's the same thing. Self-control in our speech. James goes more in detail in chapter 3 on taming the tongue. There's a lot to say about the tongue in, in the book of James. How's your tongue? Not the fleshy organ in your mouth, but how, how's your speech? Your language, what you say. Take an inventory of your speech and the kind of speech that comes out of your mouth. Do you praise God here in church and then in the week time you blaspheme his name? Do you speak with reverence about God whenever you speak about him or his word or his works? Do you slander others behind their back instead of going to them? Is your tongue one that is more critical of others rather than encouraging others? And this is a trap I fall into sometimes. And when others think of us, well, I mean, what do others think of us? Do we know? Has someone ever said, I think you're just... You're being too critical and discouraging all the time. And I just don't see much encouragement coming out of your mouth. But that's one of, one of the signs James is saying here of obeying God's word is you keep a tight rein on your tongue. What's the next one? A tight rein on your tongue. Next one is keeping care of the vulnerable. Verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, here is the right religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. Pure and undefiled. And those words mean, mean, mean clear and clean and, and free from contamination. Whereas the religions of the world are, are stuffed to the full with sin. They're polluted with, with sin. What is it? To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And in the Bible, in what was read out for us, before in the scriptures, is God cares for the orphans and the widows. And why orphans and widows? Because we see in the Old Testament, even in the early church, is that orphans and widows often had no father or husband to provide and protect them, provide for and protect them. 
And they were special objects of God's compassion because they were the most needy in Israel and even in the early church, particularly the widows in the early church in 1 Timothy 5. And so we're to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Deuteronomy 10.18 says this, God executes justice for the orphan and widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And so are you caring for the most needy in the church? And it may not be an orphan or a widow. We don't have as many orphans as they did back then. And we don't see as many orphans as back then. Even widows. Praise God we live in a country where there is, there is support. And they have family. But for widows who are truly widows in the sense that they, as 1 Timothy 5 says, who need it. Or others in the church when a need arises and they, they don't have money or they, they need our help. Do we give it? It says they're in their distress. In their distress. I mean, if they're a widow or an orphan, they're not in distress. Praise God. But if they're in distress or if you see another brother or sister in Christ here in distress, give. And this may be time. It's not necessarily money, but it may well be money. Maybe time and care. It may be a spoken word. It may be help. Whatever it is. We as a church and as individuals must not close our hearts. But this is a religion that Christ, Christ exemplifies. This is a religion that God honours, that is pure and, and spotless before God. Well, what's the last thing? Keep yourself unstained from the world. What does it say? And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And this word... Keep yourself from being polluted. This word is to be spotless or unstained. So keep yourself unstained from the world. And that speaks of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 19. It says, Christ and his blood, it speaks of him as a lamb unblemished and spotless. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? But it's one that honours God. Christ lived in this world but wasn't of it. He was spotless. He didn't follow the ways of this world. He didn't think worldly thoughts. He didn't set his affections on the world, but on God and his word. He chose to walk in obedience to God and to shun evil. What are you marked by? Pollution of the world or the cleanness of a holy life? What are you marked by? A religion that is mired in sin and self-righteousness? A religion... That honours God in holiness in what you do. And so as you control your tongue, as you care for others, and as you keep yourself from the pollution of the world and walk in joyful, blessed obedience to God, you will find the law of God to be one of freedom and joy and blessedness. And as a doer of God's law, you will have freedom to live for Christ. But here, if you're unsaved, the law of God is not freedom to you but one of bondage. Because all the Lord does is show you your sin. But if you're here this morning and you realize that your sin, you're a slave to your sin, and that you're not free in Christ, and you're not resting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, do not push down the sight of your sin. Encourage that side of your sin. As you look in the mirror of God's Word, see your sin. Because it shows you your need for Christ. 
It shows you the one who obeyed the law in every way where you did not. It shows the one who took the curse of the law on himself on the cross so that you, if you trust in Christ alone, will be saved. The law of God, if you're outside of Christ, all it does is condemns you and drives you to Christ as the only source of your salvation. So don't put it off. See your sin in the law of God. See what slavery and bondage you are in into your sin. And see that the only one who sets you free is Christ. For indeed, even as the scripture says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And the law of God will be suddenly transformed into this beautiful, beautiful thing which you use to obey God in, 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 in freedom, to honour God. Not to justify you before him. But that's so you work out your salvation with fear and trembling and that's so you honour and glorify him. Let's come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, precious God. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, that it is, a, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, that lamp and light shows us, Lord, our sin in such detail. But it also shows us, Lord, what obedience to require of us. Lord, we pray that indeed we would confess our sin to you. And that we would walk in obedience to you, in thankfulness to you. In thankfulness to your son for setting us free from the law and bondage to it. And that we would walk in joyful, thankful obedience to you. We thank you, Father, for your Son. We thank you that he obeyed the law in every respect. And that indeed he suffered under the curse of your law because of our sin. And we pray, precious Lord, that we would delight not just in the hearing of your word, but in the doing of it. And Lord, we pray that you would richly bless us in that. And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know you, who are outside of Christ. Lord, please show them their sin. Show them, Lord, all the depths of their sin. And show them all the perfect grace and righteousness that is found in your Son. And may they flee. Lord, please give them grace to flee to Christ and to trust and rest in him alone. Oh, Lord, we pray all these things for the glory of Christ. Amen.